Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Success 101 podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Ample, the incredible meal in the bottle that gets your brain and body into higher levels of peak performance every day. You guys have heard me talk about this thing forever. I love it. There's no chopping. There's no blending. There's no mixing. There's no going to find incredible ingredients from all around the world. The good people over at Ample have already done all that for you. You can choose your 400 or 600 calorie shake from some of the most amazing ingredients around the world with high quality fats, clean burning carbohydrates, probiotics, prebiotics, basically a bunch of jet fuel that gets your brain and body going every day. I love it. I grab one every morning. You can put water in this. You can put milk in this. You can put cold brew coffee in this. You can put whatever you want in this. But the point is they've made it easy to hit levels of peak performance for your brain and body each day. So I want you guys to go check it out. Head to success101podcast.com forward slash ample, that's A-M-P-L-E, and at checkout, make sure you put in the code SUCCESS101. You're going to snag 15% off your order, and we're talking a ton about the brain today with Phil Dobson. This show is also brought to you by Blue Apron, which if you want to talk about super quality ingredients, Blue Apron has mastered the food delivery service. My team's put two offers over on the website for you to get $30 off or $50 off, depending on how you set up your order. They've got some new buffalo sliders over there that are killer, not to mention their Mediterranean diet, which is my favorite line of food over there. I order mine. It comes in around Thursday or Friday. I have a ton of fun with this over the weekend. They've got a wine pairing list over there. If you guys have guests coming over, they take all the guesswork out of it. Again, super fresh ingredients and tons I mean, tons. Go check out the website. There's tons of options to choose from. Head to success101podcast.com forward slash blue apron. There's two offers we're running over there right now. So again, head to success101podcast.com forward slash blue apron. Click on the links we've got set up over there and enjoy. Also, my team still has my book available, From Success to Significance, The Six Vision Building Strategies, The Five Components to Creating a Bigger Vision, all of that's included there. And somebody just wrote into the team this week from Brisbane Brisbane, about how the rewards and consequences multiplier turned on a light bulb for them in their brain. They had tried different vision strategies before, and it was that simple concept, the rewards and consequences multiplier, that just switched a light on for them. My team's offering this for just the shipping cost on the paperback if you're in the United States. Head to success101podcast.com forward slash book. And at checkout, put SUCCESS101 in the coupon or promo code. If you're not in the U.S., you can download the ebook reader and you'll have a digital download sent directly to you so that you can get on track with creating your bigger vision for the future. Get on it. Now, super fired up about the show today with Phil Dobson. Who is Phil Dobson, you might ask? Phil is the founder of Brain Workshops just across the pond over in the U.K., you guys know I love the way the brain works. If we're going to talk about peak performance, if we're going to talk about mindset, all of the things we can do to stay out of self-sabotage, negativity, you got to start with the brain. The problem is so few people focus on the brain. They focus on everything else around them, or they freaking take stimulants or energy drinks or whatever it is that they try to do to get going every day. But I love the work of Phil Dobson. He turns the insights from neuroscience and cognitive and behavioral psychology into real-life techniques designed for the modern workplace, designed for the business world that you guys can use immediately. His company, Brain Workshops, helps people put together basically a toolkit of practical skills, helping you increase your performance at work and in life and in overall mindset. He's done a ton of stuff with the BBC, Viacom International, Warner Music, Jamie Oliver, the Discovery Channel, 
Paramount Pictures, NBC. He knows what he's talking about, and he puts it in an easy-to-understand format for upgrading our peak performance when it comes to the brain. New concepts and ideas to help you reach your full potential. Reach your full potential. Reach your full potential. Small win, small win, small win. Keep your momentum going. The Success 101 Podcast. Welcome to the Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. How are things over in London this morning? Good morning, Jared. Very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. Good to be with you. How, how, how are things over your side? Uh, they're great here, having a great week, and I'm very excited to have you on. Whenever I found out you were going to be on our show this week, I got excited, and I always do. Anytime there is anyone talking about brain-based behavior or brain activity in ways that will help us become more productive, that will help us become smarter and work smarter, and I look forward to diving into that as well. But first, tell us a little bit about your work around brain activity and brain-based behavior, how you got into the field you're in now, and how that's led you to the work that you're doing. Sure. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah. So what I do now is I work with the leaders and organizations, um, helping them become more resilient, more productive, and more creative by helping them apply what we know about the brain to their day-to-day -day work. Um, how did I get here? Well, it was kind of a... Um, I suppose an interesting learning journey for myself. I, it all started back in 2007 when I broke my ankle doing a handspring. Um, I think so often the, the 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 beginning of these journeys can start with a, a bad event that that leads to a, a silver lining. So, yeah, 2007 broke my ankle, and that prompted a completely uh, change of direction from my career that was in business development at the time. And I retrained as a clinical hypnotherapist. So it was the following year that I set up my practice in London. And I had a great deal of success as a therapist, helping people with the sort of things that hypnotherapists can help people with. So stress and sleep and behavior modification and confidence and all that sort of stuff. And the success I had became kind of tainted with a frustration with the, which was this realization that it seemed bizarre and still does actually that people need to see a specialist to help them with these sorts of things i mean if you think about the importance of sleep the necessary uh stress management and things like this it still is remarkable how little we are taught about our brain our behavior learning even our body we go through 20 years of schooling come out with very little understanding of how our body or our brain works. And I did a degree in psychology and still had very few applicable techniques. Um, so I thought it would be useful and interesting if I could break down the principles behind so many of these hypnotherapeutic techniques and then teach them to other people so that they would not need to see a therapist. Um, and that led me to study neuroscience. I wanted a deeper understanding of why some of the techniques were so potent, um, what hypnosis was as a state from the brain's perspective. And critically, because by now I was self-employed, I was also interested in finding out what neuroscience could teach me with regard to working smarter. 
you know, I knew if I could get eight hours work done in six hours every day, I could go on holiday for three months every year. Um, so this led to an ever increasing understanding of how the brain works when we're at work. And I started working with ever more organizations way back then. I was teaching people how to hypnotize themselves and how to apply that to uh, improving their performance. And nowadays it's a bit more of the, well, much like you cover on your podcast, productivity, resilience, um, creativity, and yeah, back to the book, how to think and work smarter based on what we know about the brain. Now, I know that your work also led you to develop a science of peak performance where you're taking what we know about the brain and, and developing that to do things smarter and faster. And, you know, that's really what this podcast was created for, was how to hit levels of peak performance and max potential each day. We've got to understand how the brain works and not necessarily so much of the neurological part of it, you know, you don't have to go to school for 20 years to understand just here's what keeps me in deep focus each day and here's what keeps me in deep distraction each day. Talk to me a little bit about the science of peak performance. You mentioned working smarter and freeing up our time. What would you say is the biggest cause of people getting into a rut of distraction and being unproductive each day? And how do we turn that into higher levels of peak performance? That's a good question. So the biggest challenge people have, I think, is... If we look at attention, you mentioned distractions, attention, the capacity to focus. I feel that we are, are letting our attention be corroded every day. Um, I think so much of our behavior now, especially our relationship with technology, is unconscious. We don't really choose so many of our behaviors. Many of the listeners will have probably checked their phone first thing this morning. Many will continue to do so when they go to bed at night. And so this, we, we bear the cost, but we don't tend to change our habits. And another problem I think we have is that for many of us, gone are the days when we can quantify our output. You know, if we made chairs each day, then I would be able to measure the fact that on particular days I could make eight of them and others I might make six. And then I could retrospectively analyze, well, under what conditions do I make eight and what conditions do I make six? And can I replicate the former? Um, now we live in a, a service, a digital and a sort of, we get paid for our thoughts. It's far less easy to quantify, in which case we just become this perpetually distracted and, and most importantly, perpetually busy doing actually very little. So what can we do about it? I think when we want to get more from our brain at work, it helps to think about it in a modular perspective. So much like using a computer better, you can think about it from the hardware perspective and you can think about it from the software perspective. You can upgrade your whole system and then you can get better at using the applications and the software. So if we apply that analogy to the brain, the first step I think is to think about the conditions under which your brain performs better as a single organ. You know, we're often hear about the brain being a muscle and, and there, are, there are certain conditions under which your brain just tends to have greater output measured by your cognitive performance, your learning potential and your long-term mental health, your chances of getting um, dementia and so forth. So I would put that into, into a model of, of five things. I developed the sense model years ago to reflect the five things that typically correlate greatest with your brain fitness measured by those three things I mentioned, performance, learning, and long-term mental health. And the five things are these, stress. So we know that under high levels of stress, our thinking can be compromised. We become scatty, we become impulsive, decision-making um, becomes irrational. And so we have this necessary need to manage stress. Now, stress is an overused term. What I really mean is managing your state because some people say, well, you can have good stress and you can have bad stress. And absolutely that's true. But there are some 
peak level where you feel motivated, you feel aroused, but you're not freaking out. So stress management through things like meditation, mindfulness, or simple relaxation exercises can be critical to your short-term performance and long-term mental health. Number two, physical exercise. Exercise is important because like any muscle, your brain needs blood, it needs glucose to function. So as you move, you get more blood flowing to your brain and that correlates with improved performance in the short term and again, improved long-term mental health. Some studies have shown that 20 minutes of exercise just three times a week can cut your chances of dementia by over 50%. So stress, it's it's formidable when you think about the differences. If it was five or 10%, it would be significant. But to halve it, then you really kind of, you feel back in control of of something that a lot of people for a long time thought was genetic. Number three, uh, nutrition. So we all know that we're supposed to eat our vegetables, but it helps to know the foods that your brain has a particular fondness for. And Time and time again, the the diet that is recommended most regularly is that of a Mediterranean diet. So lots of fresh foods, lots of oils, lots of fish. We know this. Um, But water, just adequate adequate hydration is often overlooked. And dehydration can can cause up to a 15% drop in your performance. And sugar is the bad stuff. That's becoming more and more linked. The more we understand about dementia, the more we understand about um, insulin resistance, the more we understand that sugar and high blood sugar specifically can look can lead to neural degeneration. So more water, uh, less sugar and follow a Mediterranean diet. Number four, sleep. Um, We probably all know that we're supposed to sleep between seven and nine hours each night, but we're so quick to sacrifice sleep, feeling that, well, if if we have more time to work, then our performance will increase. But it's just not that simple. Sacrificing sleep to get more done is 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 a fallacy. It's a false economy because you don't whatever time you have, you don't have the cognitive competence with which to use your brain. So it's absolutely critical. So many of the people I work with compromise on sleep. They turn up to work after less than six hours and then they wonder why they can't get their get their work done as well. So that's the fourth thing. And then finally, I'd say the sense model is rounded off with experience. Now that's probably the most ambiguous term. What I mean by experience is acknowledging that your brain responds to your experience like a muscle. So one of the best ways to keep your brain young, flexible and adaptable is to continue to learn new things, to immerse yourself in novelty and the unfamiliar. And just like a muscle, it will respond in turn. It will stay young, it will stay active and you'll have it. You'll have your faculty for longer. So quick summary, stress, exercise, nutrition, sleep, and experience. If you invest in those five things, your brain will be younger, more adaptable, it will it will work quicker, it will be more flexible, and necessarily your performance at work will improve. Now, that's not where it ends because we can get to work and if we're no good at setting goals, if we're not very good at managing our email inbox, etc. etc., then we're not gonna perform at our best. So I think working smart then necessarily has probably five steps too. I think that. So often we, well, you mentioned it yourself. We think about distraction. We think about focus. Hey, Phil, I don't mean to de- I don't mean to derail you here at all. But before we go on to the uh, to the working smarter and the five steps there, do you mind if we camp out on a few of these? Yeah, please. Can we go through just these five? You know, briefly these five yeah. things, and then we'll hit on the the working smarter. Talk a little bit about stress. What would you recommend to uh, our listeners here? As you know, you've got your you've got your basic things like 
pushing your chair back during the day, taking deep breaths. I've learned so much about breathing over the last year and a half that I never knew. I mean, you mentioned that there's a world out there of just just things that they don't teach us. It's amazing how much is really out there when it comes to just stress relief that we don't know about breathing, meditation, those sort of things. What would you recommend to me if I came to you uh, as a stranger and just said, hey, I'm, I'm really stressed out. I need some relief here. Day-to-day stuff. I think that my... <laughs> If you came to me with that, my my first response would be to understand stress from a physiological perspective. You mentioned breathing, meditation, and mindfulness, and, and those three things are critical to regulating your nervous system, which is really what we're talking about. Um, and I would recommend Headspace as an app. I'd recommend um, simple, you know, becoming more aware. Again, so critical as the first point in any sort of in- intervention. What is your breathing? Where does it come from? And simple breathing exercises. But but I think we also sometimes can overemphasize the importance of this physical relaxation because the stress response includes our whole nervous system. And I think it can help people if we break the nervous system down into three sort of components. Yes, there's your physiology. So the more you can lower your cortisol levels, the more you can relax, and the more you put your, um, you know, your nervous system into that state of rest and repair, then the better. But we can't forget the importance of emotional regulation. And Martin Seligman has probably done the most um, well-known research on what we call locus of control. So people become more resilient if they feel they have a greater control over their experience. So the absence of control leads you to become a victim and your stress levels go higher. So your response to stress isn't just a fact of the degree or the the amount of stress. It's how resourceful you feel. So a simple exercise that might help you increase your locus of control might be just simply considering, well, what are the five ways you feel you get energy? It could be hanging out with your friends. It could be exercising. It could be uh, having challenging conversations. It could be learning, whatever these things are, things that you love doing. And then, well, what are the five ways that really drain your energy? It could be conversations with a particular person. It might be doing certain things that you would rather not do. It could be all sorts of things, right? That That is, is open to interpretation. But if you can then make more time for the things that give you energy, and if you can challenge your responses to the things that drain you, the ultimate outcome of that is sure you end up probably enjoying your life a bit more and being more fulfilled but ultimately you start to to cultivate a greater sense of control so that would be the second thing and then finally if you can regulate your physiology and sort of regulate your emotional well-being we often forget that a lot of people's stress comes from cognitive overload so a simple technique i would encourage you to do for that is just once a week just get it all out. Empty your brain. Get Whether you do it with pen and paper or you get a, a task management app, just scribble down all the things that are on or in your mind, whether that's work-related stuff, the following, the chasing, the instigation, or it's your sending your niece a birthday card, renewing your travel insurance, all that sort of just life admin. So often we carry around these things in our brain and then we wonder why when we get to work we feel overwhelmed or we find it hard to maintain our focus when actually if we're holding all this stuff in there it's another form of multitasking even even if we're not kind of strictly conscious of the things that we are um, holding around there so yeah stress management absolutely start with the physical regulation the breathing the meditation the mindfulness absolutely but don't forget the importance of emotional well-being through locus of control and Cognitive management, you know, getting things out of your brain regularly. And I, I think once a week works for me. Any any more than that, and you're just creating a to-do list, which this thing shouldn't be. Any less than that, 
then you get this buildup of sort of unattended tasks, which ultimately get in the way of you focusing and, and sort of getting the most from your mental energy. Breathing, meditation, mindfulness, uh, again, just things that if you haven't hit those higher levels of stress, you may be hearing this and saying, man, okay, you guys are kind of losing me there. But once you get into burnout and fatigue, which it's, you know, it's going to come for all of us at some point, if we're not taking care of ourselves, these become very important things in the area of working smarter and reducing stress. Exercise and diet. Can you take us down maybe uh, if you're willing to share your routine of exercise and diet, what you're doing for brain health uh, in those areas as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, exercise, I think there are probably three tips that I, I would, would recommend and I try to follow as much as I can. Twice to three times a week, you need to get your heart rate up for maybe 20, 30 minutes or more. And, and that seems to, the research suggests that it's the getting your heart rate up um, and for slightly longer periods that help ward off um, Alzheimer's and dementia. And the reason, one of the reasons anyway, is because when you exercise, you get a big dose of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that is the protein that enables your brain to learn. It's, it's the protein that helps you make more gray and white matter. So critical for your long-term mental health. But for your performance day-to-day, -day, you can do it even less. If you think about, I think so much of our relationship with exercise, we still think from the position of our physical health, our, our waistline, and, and we think about burning calories. Instead, think about just oxygenating your brain. When you move, even if you're stretching, you get an increase in blood flow to your brain, and that correlates directly with your performance because your brain needs the glucose and the oxygen to function. So what I do, and one of the things, I think probably the one of the easiest and most pleasant cognitive hacks there is, is just before you start work, go for a 20 minute walk. I mean, I'm very lucky that I live virtually next to, or virtually on rather, a park in East London. So it provides the perfect um, incentive to either get on my bike or just take a walk. Sometimes I go for a jog, but sometimes just a simple walk along the park and back along the canal. And it does a number of things. I know that it increases this blood flow, which gives me the oxygen, the BDNF and the glucose for me to function, but necessarily it's, a beautiful start to the day. I mean, we've other guests of yours have mentioned the importance of you know your state, and you want to ma maintain your performance. Then you can't forget your physiological, emotional, and cognitive state. And just a journey into the outside. You've got the vitamin D three. You know, you've got the, the illumination that's kind of waking your brain up as well. I think that's absolutely critical, and it's a wonderful way to start the day. I, I can't think of any other intervention that correlates most directly with my sustained performance, particularly in the afternoon, I find. If I don't have time for one reason to do that exercise, um, I become more distracted through the day. So I think it's so easy. And then, even more micro, I suppose... Have more breaks, and when you when you have a break, get up and move. You know, so many people they have their breaks, they do a little alt tab on their computer, and they go from one URL to another, and that, from your brain's perspective, just doesn't cut it. You know, you've got to get up, move, go downstairs, get get a drink of water from I don't know upstairs rather than downstairs. Just move more. Think, like I said, less about burning calories, more about increasing blood flow to your brain, and it will be grateful for it. But so will your your performance. Nutrition, you mentioned, I think. Like I said, we, we don't really need to be told about the vegetables, but I think three tips that I, I follow I pretty much daily. Uh, I mean, I'm very lucky that my, my girlfriend is a fantastic cook, but nevertheless, I've always been um, 
fond of the whole foods, the fresh foods. I've loved, you know, fish and seafood ever since I was a kid. So, um, and London, I've got to say, if I ever moved out of London, I think the one thing I'd miss, perhaps above all else, is the provision of good food. London's got a very bad reputation, or perhaps the UK has a very bad reputation internationally for its food. But over the last 10 years or so, it has been revolutionized with not only the quality you can eat in restaurants, but the provision of varied ingredients in supermarkets, whether it's herbs, whether it's sort of unfamiliar spices. Um, so it really enables me to get excited about food and just cook fresh stuff. So top tips, a Mediterranean diet, lots of fish, lots of high quality, the, the good oils, your, your medium chain triglycerides, which is what your brain needs. So olive oil, coconut oil, and the fishes that we all know, the, the high oily fish, salmon, mackerel, etc. Um, fresh vegetables, obviously we know this, we don't need to be told this. Uh, berries, blueberries often is, is listed on your brain food lists, but that also includes strawberries and, and cranberries, things that are good antioxidants. Um, lots of water. Start your day with half a pint, obviously I was talking in the States, half a litre um, of, of water we wake up dehydrated and, and dehydration can cause a measurable drop in our performance so again talking about simple cognitive hacks you know we're, we're, there's this kind of nootropic revolution people taking all sorts of smart drugs water comes out of the tap that's one of the best smart drugs there is start each day with a large glass of water stay hydrated through the day green tea is obviously a, a good one as well and then sugar uh, the one thing i think i probably moderated or changed most over the last five or more years is my consumption of sugar. I still like it. Which that's probably the hardest one. Yeah, I guess so. It's the one obviously, you know, as you know, creates a you know spike of dopamine. We respond much like a drug to, to sugar. And let's face it, if you buy processed food, there is a lot of sugar in it. So I still like, you know, a biscuit every now and again. I think we all do. But the more... <laughs> The research is becoming clearer and clearer. High blood sugar leads to insulin resistance. Our insulin re receptors in our brain seem to be uh, highly involved in memory consolidation. So if you knacker your insulin receptors over time through elevated blood sugar, your insulin receptors become effectively denatured. They become... Um, ineffective and we find it hard to form memories. Now, that's why a lot of neurologists nowadays will refer to as Alzheimer's as diabetes type three. That's the link. That's how powerful the link is between sugar and ultimately uh, neural degeneration as you age. So yeah, I'm starting to hear more and more about that just in things that I'm reading and, and research I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, again, it's relatively easy. Once you know so many of these things, they are they're, they're kind of intuitive. Common sense may be too far, but so much of what I teach and what we're talking about now is really surprising, right? It's just kind of sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the importance or the significance of it. And sometimes the research, the study, when you get a bit of understanding of neuroscience, it just comes a bit more credible and you sort of think, okay, well, I think that there is, like I said about exercise, so much of what we're taught is about our physical health. And I think that we often grow immune right, to this advice that we've heard time and time and time again, again about watch your calories and watch your sugar and stay hydrated and stuff. And, you know, we, we start to become desensitized. I think with this new understanding of how this stuff affects our brain, it gives us a real opportunity to 
um, to add perhaps to what we already know, but from a, with a different benefit. It's not just about your waistline. It's about your performance day to day, you know? I think that covers us pretty well on, on diet and exercise. Going into sleep, which is one that I'm probably the most passionate about. Obviously, sleep is important. I've had uh, Dr. Michael Bruce, the sleep expert, sleep doctor on my podcast before. But uh, tell us about just your own sleep regimen, how much you're getting uh, or prefer to get for your own brain health and what you'd recommend for us. Okay, well, I the research is pretty clear on this. Most people, most adults, perform at their best between seven and nine hours of sleep. Um, it seems that below six hours, that's when it kind of gets quite well, measurable difference, not only in your short-term performance, but in your, in your long-term mental health. So I'll briefly explain why, and then I'll certainly be happy to share my, my habits. Um, we know, we probably all know that we sleep in cycles and you're typically your first half of your sleep tends to involve more deep sleep, which is quite physically restorative. And then the latter half of your sleep is probably more associated with REM, which tends to be more kind of mental restoration. So we know that there is this window really where between seven and nine hours, we tend to perform better. Lots of studies have replicated this, that if you compare groups comparing eight with six hours, the eight hour group consistently outperformed the six our group but interestingly often the subjects in these groups think they perform just as well after six as they do after eight so <laughs> we're not very good at measuring it and we're not very good at measuring our own output objectively so if you're interested in your short-term day-to-day performance always favor eight hours over six in the long term we're starting to notice the link between sleep deprivation and uh, cortical atrophy, as it's referred, but ultimately your brain can literally start to shrink. And one of the things that we now understand that happens while we sleep is your brain is washed of a toxin. As you're awake, even right now, as we're speaking, our brains are building up levels of something called beta amyloid. Much like your physical muscles create lactic acid when you work out, your brain's kind of doing a similar thing. As we fall asleep, your glymphatic system washes your brain of this beta amyloid, which means when you wake up, hopefully you've got back to kind of equilibrium level. If you sleep for less than six hours and it becomes chronic, you risk this elevation of beta amyloid levels that again, over time, increases your risk of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, how do I apply this sort of stuff? Well, I've always been very lucky that I've slept very well. Ever since a kid, I've been perhaps unusually good at sleeping. But if I don't, if I, you know, we, we all sometimes have a day where a particularly important day is going to happen and suddenly we find ourselves unable to fall asleep. So if I want to sleep better, and this is advice I give to other people, I think it's important to re remind ourselves that sleeping shouldn't be a skill that we need to learn. <laughs> We're all, in fact, all mammals are pretty good at sleeping. So given that humans are only really the ones that seem to have a problem, well, what is it that we're doing wrong? And I think it helps to break this down into, again, three different appreciations of the conditions. First, your physiology. We know that if your cortisol levels are elevated, you're going to find it harder to fall asleep. You probably know that, you know, we know fight or flight response. We know why cortisol is there. We know why it keeps us alive. But similarly, it keeps us up at night. How can you lower your cortisol levels to create the right conditions to sleep physiologically? Well, it's back to meditation, mindfulness, progressive relaxation, anything you can do that regulates your nervous system kind of directly. We're just talking about finding time to relax. So often I've, I ask people, well, how do you relax? And they tell me, well, I see my friends or I drink red wine or I go out or I watch a movie. 
all of which are fantastic, but they're a pretty indirect way to achieve an, an objective. If you want to relax, do it directly, consciously, deliberately. Sit down, um, close your eyes, just give yourself five minutes, do a progressive muscular relaxation. Start with your toes, finish at your head. Think about creating the right conditions from your physiological perspective. Then think about your environment. We are all aware that loud noise and, and if it's overly hot or cold, then that can disrupt our sleep. So firstly, the temperature. Research suggests your room temperature you want at about 18 degrees, but then it's blue light that's the biggest culprit, right? Light keeps us up. Light, we're, we're mammals that respond to our environment and we take data from our environment to figure out whether it's day or night. So it's no surprise that shift workers find it hard to work throughout the night, because their body wants to fall asleep. All of us are still on our smart device, our phone or our tablet, when we get into bed and then we wonder why our sleep is being disrupted. Obviously, we're sending a, a conflicting message to our brain that, well, it's still light and so we need to stay alert. So two things when we think about light. Firstly, reduce exposure to blue light as much as you can when you go to bed. And I, I say blue light because it's the end of the spectrum that, that our brain seems to respond to most. But similarly, it, increase your exposure during the day. So if you can, make sure you go for a walk at lunchtime or just get out in the daylight when you can. And then maybe an hour, maybe two hours before you go to bed, really try and eliminate artificial light, especially the screens that people are looking at ever more obsessively at night. Now there are, as we become ever more aware of the costs of this, applications that allow you to remove the blue light. I think actually the latest Apple operating system now does it by default, but there used to be an app called Flux, F yep. right, you know it. And that, amazing, if you're using your, your laptop, you know, late at night, Ideally, don't, but if you do, you know, obviously we've got to be realistic, then use Flux and it just progressively removes the blue light of the spectrum and therefore makes disrupting your sleep slightly less likely. Yeah, I'm pretty staunch on that just because of all the research that I've seen on it. So if anybody grabs my phone ever or my, my tablet or anything like that, I've got two or three iPads. I've got a Microsoft Surface that I work on that's got Flux on it. I've got my iPhone yeah. that's, got, that's got the uh, night vision on it. I keep them on 24 hours a day. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, people are like, hey, what, what have you got a filter on this or something? It's kind of hard to see. And uh, I'll switch switch it off and all the blue light comes in. I'm like, ah, like it's just so, it's Absolutely. so uncomfortable, but yet it's something I've looked at pretty much all my life. But once you go, you know, let's say a few days without using it, and then all of a sudden you kick it back on, you realize how damaging and uncomfortable it really is. And that's what we're staring at for hours upon hours Absolutely. You know, each day. Absolutely. It's funny, we, I mean, we might talk about this later, but I think there are so many default settings that we have that are I think crazy. So another example, not really related to what we're talking about directly, but you know, you, you get a, a new computer now and the chances are, well, a phone is the same. All of the default settings are alert me when I get a text message. Give me a ping when I have an update. Give me a little buzz when I get a, I don't know, a retweet. And then we wonder why we're perpetually distracted. You know, it's like, yeah. come on, turn that stuff off. And it amazes me that the default settings for all those are on rather than off, right? I mean, most of, uh, most of the workshops I do, especially helping people become more productive. Another way of saying is that we've, we've spoken about this. How can you become more focused? How can you sustain your focus or become less distracted? One of the simplest ways is just turn all of your alerts off, whether it's yeah emails or texts or updates or any of those things. Thinking about an alert from an evolutionary perspective, it's just simply an unexpected stimuli, normally from our periphery. Like, it's gonna demand our attention because it could be a threat. 
And we know it's not a threat, but our brain finds these things inherently sure. stressful and it will demand our attention. And then, so, you know, some research suggests it takes us 25 minutes to refocus. So, so many of these sort of things, if, if only there was a neuroscientist that worked for these organizations <laughs> and they could go, kind of look, you know what, let's just make things a bit easier for people. Let's, let's give them the settings that are most conducive to performance and let them change them if they want for some particular reason. But yeah, so often it's, it's kind of a battle to, to reclaim our attention, I think. Oh, absolutely. And, and I really appreciate Apple for, you know, really understanding that health is a big deal and staring at these screens all the time is a big deal. They could have easily not put that on their devices, but uh, it's a step in the right direction for sure. Yeah. So uh, the last one was experience. If you want to touch on that, or we can go ahead and dive straight into the five, uh, you know, tips for working smarter as well, whichever direction you want to take it there. Well, let me let me just briefly explain what I mean by experience. And it's, it's this, it's just acknowledging that the more we understand about the brain, the more we see it as a muscle and one that responds to our experience. So this is more about maintaining your long-term mental uh, learning and, and your brain plasticity. So we've probably heard the how good learning a language is for your brain, but ultimately a bit of a reframe. Think about your brain like this muscle that responds to experience. If you want to keep your brain young, treat your brain as if it was young. If, you, if we plot age against unfamiliarity, so often it just tails off and tails off and tails off, right? So when we're born, everything is unfamiliar. New sights, new sounds, new words, new sensations, and our brain responds immediately. It learns uh, this record rate. And then when we're old, we suddenly find it's hard to remember people's names. It's hard to learn new, new things. Well, it's because we've stopped learning new things. So just briefly, yeah, to keep your brain young, to maintain its flexibility, continue to learn new things, learn new languages, learn new musical instruments, learn how to juggle. And then each day, just embrace novelty whenever and wherever you can, whether that's walking home an unfamiliar route, maybe it's brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hand, um, meeting and talking to people that you don't know and asking them questions. Just treat your brain like the sponge that it loves to be, you know, keep steep learning curves and unfamiliarity, and it will stay younger for longer. Just within the last handful of years, so much research has come out about growing your gray matter and how elastic your brain is. You know, for for years, even people in the, yeah. you know, experts in the brain yeah. community were saying that it's, you know, it's basically hopeless. You can't grow your brain. As you get older, your brain's going to shrink. And uh, so many more, you know, fMRI studies and things like that have shown that, yeah, there, you actually can start rebuilding the brain even at older ages. And that should be encouraging for all of us, I would think. I hope so. I mean, I, I certainly have killed a few, few brain cells in my time. So <laughs> we, I, all, I, we all yeah, have. Yeah, right, right. So as we get ready to, to wrap up the podcast, again, I want to hit on your book and a little bit about BrainWorks as well. But take us through the five steps to working uh, smarter or that blueprint and how we can all get on that better path now that we know the five things we can do for better brain health. Okay, so working smarter each day, I think it necessarily has five steps. Number one, figure out what you want. <laughs> So often we are obsessed with this day-to-day -day productivity with busyness and responsiveness and ultimately other people's most valuable things. What do you want? Where do you want to be three years from now? Where do you want to be a year from now? What would that happen if you broke that down into quarters? What would that necessarily mean you need to get done in the next three months? I think that we can be too goal-oriented and I think that I know some people that suffer with that it will be okay when syndrome. But... The solution to that is not to have no goals. So I think number one, necessarily, what excites you? What do you want to be doing more of? What do you want to be doing less of? And set some measurable objectives that reflect that. Number two, 
apply the 80-20 principle. Everyone probably knows this. If you're listening to this podcast, the chances are you understand Pareto's rule, but apply it. You know, we know that 20% of what you do generates 80% of your results. So based on your goals, based on your objectives, what are your most valuable tasks? What are the things that get you where you want to be? And a question I sometimes ask people to help them really understand that is if you work five days a week, if suddenly you could only work one day a week, what would you make sure you did? What are your high value tasks? What are the things that directly get you towards your goals? And then similarly, the flip to that, well, what are your least valuable tasks? What are the 80% of things you do that actually only really correlate to 20% of your value that you add, whether it's the organization you work with or your own business? Understand your most valuable and your least valuable tasks, because if you don't, you just risk being busy, creating very little progress. So that's number two. Number three, and it's kind of linked, well, it necessarily linked, but it's no good just knowing what they are. You need to then work more on your most valuable tasks and less on your least valuable tasks. This is important because a lot of people just think, well, if I do more of this and more of this and more of this, so much business strategy and all this sort of stuff, it's all about doing more. Well, sometimes if you're going to do more, there's some things you need to do less of. So I always encourage people to set or to plan at least one and really no more than three most valuable tasks each day. If you're planning more than three, you're probably being unrealistic. If you're planning less than one, you're just gonna have a very uh, responsive day getting nothing done. We, I think part of the challenge to working smart is remaining self-directed despite this willingness to feel responsive. Lots of people respond to their emails with immediacy, feeling that they're creating this positive impression of their engagement, their productivity, their responsiveness. But actually what they're doing to me is they're demonstrating they're not really working on anything that important. So go into each day before it even begins, knowing what one, two, possibly three things that would constitute a successful day if you got them done, right? So that's number three. Number four, manage your energy. Now. I think we use mental energy and attention synonymously, as if they're the same thing, and I don't think they are. Focus without energy is as useless as the other way around. So manage your mental energy. What does this mean? Well, everybody knows probably that they probably have more energy in the morning than after lunch, right? Most people think that they're better between 9 and 12 than they are between 2 and 4 p.m. And there's reasons for that. We have our circadian rhythms and we're mammals that tend to feel a bit sleepy, roughly halfway between waking up and then falling asleep. But then I wonder how much do people actually plot what they do based on this? And I think something to this uh, thought experiment is to think, well, imagine you have to delegate all of your tasks. And you have three employees to whom you can delegate all of your tasks. One employee turns up at 9am, but unfortunately leaves at noon. This employee is your best. They're smart, they're clever, they get things done quickly, they need no checking. All of the work is of as high a quality as you can deliver. But unfortunately, they only work for three hours a day. And then after that, after, around lunchtime, you get your least value employee. I won't, I won't use a, a rude word, but someone that's really slow, makes lots of mistakes, lots of errors, everything needs to be checked, and ultimately takes twice as long for, to, to get anything done. Fortunately, they go home at 3 p.m. and then your last employee, maybe till six or whatever, the last few hours of the day, they're maybe somewhere in between, in between the two. Maybe they're most your most creative employee. Now, if you think about it in those terms, obviously it would affect to whom you delegate what task. You'd give your morning employee all your most valuable tasks. You'd give your 
late afternoon person, the maybe somewhere in between, and you give the person who comes in after lunch the administrative low-value tasks. But we go to work and we set meetings whenever. We check our email first thing, thinking, well, hang on, is that the best use of our most valuable employee? Obviously, the answer is probably no. And the point is we scatter most and least valuable tasks throughout the day without really considering when our energy is at our peak. And the more you understand about when your energy is at its peak and the more you adapt accordingly or perhaps delegate accordingly, the more productive you're likely to become. So keep your best three hours as safe as you can, do your most valuable task then, and then uh, have a break every maybe 60 or 90 minutes. I mean, recent research found that, I think it was the Dryden Group did some research and found that their most productive employees were, they worked for 52 minutes, I think, and then they had a 17 minute break. And that's taking that too literally, you probably don't want to set an alarm 52 minutes later, but every hour roughly get up, move, have a 10 minute, 15 minute break, and then come back to your tasks. So that's number four, manage your mental energy. Re-energize, do things that necessarily bring your energy back. And then finally, focus your attention. How can you create the conditions under which your brain can find focus and then sustain its focus? And well, there's a whole, probably a podcast in, in just this single topic, but some top tips, I suppose, we've mentioned this before, turn all your email alerts off, turn all Absolutely. alerts off. Think about your top three or five distractors. For some people, it's uh, other people. If you work in an open plan office, it can be notoriously um, hard to sustain your attention. Maybe it's noise, even things like that can can uh, really distract distract or disrupt your performance using going into each task knowing that you're going to finish in 90 minutes or 60 minutes can help you create this single task focus brain dumps as i've said before about the idea of emptying your brain regularly it's not only will it help you sleep but it helps you focus so working smart necessarily isn't just one thing it has to start at the top with figuring out what it is you want and at the bottom, it needs to be focusing all of your attention on those things. And the gap in between the two, that means there is this unfractured link between what you want to be doing and what you are doing is simply a question of breaking down your goals into the 80-20, focusing more on the 20, doing them uh, when your energy is at, at, at its peak, and then finally making sure that each day focus all of your attention on one thing, which is another way of saying minimize your distractions. And if you want to strengthen your focus then we're back to meditation and mindfulness it's not just the fact that you can focus your attention well or not that well you can even strengthen it over time and i think that meditation and mindfulness are really although lots of people have varying definitions of them and lots of people have, will have different experiences of them for me they are just exercises in sustained focus and if we know that the brain responds to what we do and it's a muscle that it changes based on its experience if you regularly practice focusing you get better at focusing and therefore everything starts to become easier you're more likely to get your eight hours work done in six hours but critically also you make sure that your work you're doing is in line with your goals and your objectives and some of it as you mentioned early on is common sense it's yeah. implementing that common sense into our busy day-to-day -day distraction and pinging going on all the time and things like that and you know the most helpful thing for me has been to put my phone in do not disturb mode which i used to think was like airplane mode which sure. wouldn't allow anything to come through you know for anybody that's done that though on their iphone 
smartphone, they know that, no, it's not airplane mode. Your screen is dark. Things are still happening behind the scenes. You, you know, you push the home button and you've got all these messages there, but they're just not coming in. And you can get into that deep work as Cal Newport and others talk about where we are not focused. We're not letting our thoughts run wild and sabotage what it is that we're trying to do. And ultimately, we will be better off and happier and less stressed for it. So thanks so much. Talk to us real quickly about the book, where we'll be able to find the book and the theme around that as far as obviously the brain, but what the general message is and then also brain works, how we can get more traffic over there for people to learn more about all of this. So firstly, thanks for having me on, Darren. It's been a real, real pleasure. Yep. The brain book, how to think and work smarter. It should be in, uh, well, all good, sh- all good bookshops, as they say, it'll be up on Amazon. So to learn more about me or to get access to, to my site, it's brainworkshops.co.uk. Obviously on social media, if you go to Brain Workshops Twitter, Brain Workshops Facebook, you'll find a regularly updated feed of all the sort of stuff we've been speaking about. And the book specifically, it's what we've covered in a modular framework. We talk about brain fitness, so the sense model, like we've said, how to apply um, neuroscience, I guess, to working more productively and then more creatively. We touch on improving your memory, so memory of lists, names and what you read. Uh, We talk about meditation and mindfulness and the simple um, tricks and exercises that enable you to get on that journey if you haven't already begun and then finally the the book would be um well i feel i wouldn't be uh, acknowledging my roots if i didn't conclude on self-hypnosis how you can use things like mental rehearsals to change your performance your skills and develop your experience over time man thanks so much we appreciate it wish you the best in all of your endeavors and thanks so much for helping so many people out there just get more in tune to the brain and brain-based activity as to how we can all be better and uh, we just need more people and more education out there around this so thanks for what you're doing thank you so much jared fantastic thank you Guys, I hope you took a ton away from this peak performance message that Phil and I talked through today. If you would like to connect directly with me, please shoot an email to my team at info at success101podcast.com or catch me in the world of social media on the Facebook Success 101 community page, on Instagram under the name at success101podcast or on Twitter under the name at Warren Jared. I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode. Now go engage the brain. See ya. Oh, 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 oh,